Welcome to The Rebound, where we'll explore the issues facing supply chain managers as our industry gets back up and running in a post-COVID world. This podcast is hosted by Abe Eskenazi, CEO of the Association for Supply Chain Management, and Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Abe and Bob welcome your comments. Now to today's episode. Welcome to Future Proof Your Supply Chain for 2023 and Beyond. This is a special episode of the Rebound coming to you live from ASCM Connect. We've got you in the audience. We're also streaming this out, which probably scares the death out of us. <laughs> uh, I'm Bob Troublecock. I am the Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review, and I'm the co-host of The Rebound. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Abe Ashkenazi, <clears throat> currently the CEO for ASCM, the Association of Supply Chain Management. So, Abe, if you're a music fan and if you ever watched the Woodstock movie, they bring on Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Nobody knows who they are. And their first live gig, the first time they've, li- they've played live in front of people, was Woodstock. So this is our Woodstock. We did this as a virtual event last year, but it was streaming, which was to us just like doing a regular uh, podcast. You know, last year when we did it, we asked our guests how they were coping with disruption. That was our theme. But even then, they were looking beyond the present to the future. Uh, And a year later, clearly disruption is not behind us. We just averted a rail strike, as we heard from General Lyons yesterday, But I think the best organizations are trying to look to the future, which is what we want to talk about today. So, Abe, since this is your event, take it away. Thanks, Bob. And uh, extraordinary opportunity to talk to some real professionals in our industry to provide uh, broad uh, perspectives on the supply chain challenges that we're facing today. So let me introduce this esteemed panel. Uh, First, we have David Glick, the Chief Technology Officer at Flex. Prior to that, David spent nearly 20 years at Amazon, including five as VP of Fulfillment and Technology. Next, we have Tom Rafferty. Tom's a futurist and an innovation evangelist. I want that title. Um, <laughs> he's also the host of two podcasts, and as you'll hear, he's deeply invested in supply chain's role in sustainability. And finally, Rick Watson, e-commerce influencer and the founder of CEO of RMW Commerce Consulting. He works with helping investors and management teams enhance direct-to-consumer businesses. And like Tom, he's also a host of a weekly podcast. Gentlemen, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as Bob mentioned, over the next 45 minutes, we're going to dig into a number of topics here and hopefully uh, provide some insight and some help for individuals facing some of the challenges that they're uh, dealing with today. First, uh, some of the challenges and more importantly, what's shaping the future of supply chains? What are the things that people need to pay attention to? Second, we'll dig into a little bit of the ESG and see how that's impacting our supply chain decisions and uh, hopefully uh, our future. And then finally, the core of what we do in ASCM, that is people, and how they influence supply chain and the criticality of talent within our system. So question number one, we're going to focus on the role of technology first. And in our prep session, each of you view technology as critical, obviously, but also as a side issue. It didn't seem to resonate as the most pressing thing for their organization. So let's start with a simple question here. When you think about the future, what's the most pressing issue that we see in supply chain today? Let's start with Rick. You know, I, I think particularly in the next couple of years, uh, really the most pressure issue, like three things, labor, labor, and labor. And so, so much of the problems, you know, people can't put together a real shift or plan a schedule more than five minutes in advance because, like, how do you even know if the forecast is right, much less that the people that you're going to recruit are going to show up on time or be trained properly. So that is driving a whole host of downstream effects uh, in, the, in the supply chain, not the least of which is all the technology investments used to 
make the people you can retain uh, more efficient and, and make your supply chains better? Obviously, in the, in the short term, I would say Long Beach, <laughs> right? You've got a bunch of ships queued up. You've got 100 ships. And, you know, forecasting is hard in the best of times. Uh, when you know what your vendor lead time is, you know what your demand is, you know what the interest rates are. What we've seen is that you don't know what your vendor lead time is. You don't know what the standard deviation of your vendor lead time is. And so all of those things lead into crappy forecasts. And you know, if you don't have the right forecast, you can't get the right people in the building. You end up with over inventory or under inventory. Um, I don't know if we're going to talk about Amazon's 10 million extra square feet, but uh, people say it's a supply problem. I, c I continue to believe it's a demand problem. <laughs> uh, so you know, people are saying everybody's overbuilt. Well, no, we're just underselling. <laughs> <laughs> I might take a slightly different tack. I think the future of supply chain really is going to be impacted by sustainability and climate change particularly. We are seeing massive regulation coming down the line. It is going to heavily, heavily, heavily impact supply chain over the coming years and decades. So this isn't a short-term thing. Uh, sure, we have some of the issues that we've talked about already. A lot of those are short-term, but the sustainability one is one that's it's much, much, much more serious and far, far longer term. We're talking years plus decades after that. This is something that's only going to gain in importance as we go along. Rick, I want to play off of something that you said. Um, you know, again, as Abe mentioned, we were going to talk about technology. It didn't resonate. And when we did our prep, you started with labor, labor, labor. But one of the things I'm finding is that technology is starting to be interweaved with labor. I had a call with um, uh, Jabel's chief procurement officer, and he talked about people, process, and technology, and then he weaved technology into all of those. If you attend Gartner, um, they've come up with this phrase that you know sounds like a sociological phrase, human-centric digital automation. But what they were saying is that before COVID, the big focus in supply chain was technology. We're going to AI and robot and robotic process automation. And the pandemic brought out the fact that we're still run by, you know, run by people. So as you think about what you, where you started, people and technology, what is going to be the role of technology in terms of what we do with people? How are they going to interact as you see? Yeah, I mean, I think human-centered design has really been a focus of design thinking for you know decades now, and I think that continues to increase. I mean, if there's anything that I think supply chain and warehouse automation has taught us uh, about humans and how they interact in the supply chain, it's a couple of things. Number one is like injuries, like avoiding repetitive injuries means like motions that are not safe that maybe used to be okay five, ten years ago aren't safe anymore. And how are you going to keep people employed in those situations? So that's number one, it's just repetitive in, in, uh, injuries. And then second is just motion. Motion of humans in the warehouse is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking year after year because the more the humans have to walk, um, then your supply chain is, is slower and you, you, you know, a single person can support fewer pieces per pick or whatever it is metric you're you're on the on the floor with. So I think it kind of starts with what does your customer want? How do you design a, a great customer experience? What processes need to support that? And then technology is really an enabler for that to make sure that you're getting the most of your investments in your facilities and and the people that you're hiring. David, you're a CTO. Technology is in your in your uh, wheelhouse. <laughs> Let me tell a story of like I'm actually. 
the guy said, we don't need technology. We don't need <laughs> <Yeah>. robots. <laughs> when I, I started Amazon in uh, 1998, 1999, we did the build out of 3 million square feet of highly automated warehouse space. We hired a bunch of folks from Walmart. And they came in and they built us the best case pick distribution solution that you could build for you know $50 million a building. It turned out that we weren't doing case pick. Oh. <laughs> so we were shipping each as the customers. <laughs> and it took us like five years to undo all the bad that we'd done and put in the right system. And you know the, the latest one is like Tesla. When they built the Model, Model 3 production line, all robotics. And then they ripped it all out and built the cars in the parking lot. <laughs> um, the, the success story we had, Amazon bought Kiva. And, but we really deeply understood what we needed, and we didn't try to have a, a singulation, a picking robot. We took the walking out, right? The robots did the walking. And so Kiva guys are super smart. They're like, this is hard, right? The picking is hard, but you only pick for like 15 seconds at a time. You walk for minutes at a time, and that's actually much easier. And so deeply understanding how to use technology is a prerequisite for actually using technology. And so my sales folks come in, Hey, we need robots. DHL has ro robots. I'm like, what the heck do we need robots for? <laughs> Bring me a customer who needs robots, and I'll build robots. But like, we should we should think about process first and technology second, because if you don't have the right processes, whatever technology you build is going to be wrong. Tom, you similarly have a technology background. Yes. So so weave this through as you're thinking about. Uh, you identified sustainability and climate. So weave through technology in there. Sure. So. One of the most important bits of legislation that's going to come through in the next few years is the new SEC proposals around reporting of climate risks. And this will require all organizations, all publicly listed organizations, to report their climate emissions. And that's coming in the next couple of years, depending on the size of your organization, uh, out to scope three emissions. And that's really, really hard. And you can't do that unless you've digitized all your processes. So that's going to be a, a, a huge issue for all organizations, be they supply chain or otherwise everyone has a supply chain, but you know what I mean. Whether you're a supply chain manager or whether you are a CEO of an organization, you are going to have to figure out how to digitize all your processes so that you can get that carbon footprint and report it. And those SEC proposals say that those reports need to be audited. So for up until now, many organizations who were reporting their carbon emissions. The chief sustainability officer who was responsible for that often reported into the CMO, chief marketing officer. So you, you can see where the, the kind of uh, the goals were there. But now, as the SEC starts to get involved and regulate this, that CSO, that chief sustainability officer, is going to shift over to the CFO's organization because the rigor required for that reporting would be far, far greater. So that's going to be a huge challenge for organizations, I think. And technology is the only way that you can reliably report those emissions. Thank you. Tom, it's an interesting point that you're bringing out in terms of who they report to. Uh, I think most of the individuals in this uh, room would tell you that if you want things done, get it to the supply chain folks. They'll measure it and they'll report out on it. Um, we did a study with the Economist Intelligence Unit specifically on the topic that you're bringing up. And we found that about 60 plus percent of the carbon-3 emissions does come from the supply chain. Yeah. But yet of the organizations, only 42 percent had the metrics and or reported out on their, you know, their accomplishments or their objectives. Where does the supply chain professional, the CSEO, fit within sustainability? I think it's part and parcel of everything we do from the design all the way to recycle, reuse, and you know, the, the end-of-life products. Give me a sense of where the CSEO fits in with the CFO. Yeah, 
That's it. I mean, that would be up to the individual organizations. Um, it, it'll depend on how they structure it. But obviously, the, the supply chain officer is going to be, as you say, hugely responsible because depending on the organization, it can be anything up to 90% of emissions come from the supply chain, as I say, depending on the industry. Um, I was on, on my Climate 21 podcast, I was talking to a guy called Ken Pucker. Uh, Ken is the former COO of Timberland. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that when they started on their emissions reporting journey in the early 2000s, they were only able to report 5% of their emissions because they could only report scope one and scope two. The other 95% in their case was their scope three emissions, which is their supply chain. So, you know, it depends entirely on your industry uh, where your emissions are coming from. It sounds like a lot of these uh, challenges before you mentioned moving from the CMO to the CFO. It sounds like, you know, using emissions and sustainability as a branding exercise has become a little bit of a thing of the past uh, to attract more consumers rather than, like, Let's do some real good here, and you know, if supply chain is in the beginning, to Tom's point, if that's the the biggest part of your emissions, then you, you've already been behind the eight ball. You know, if you haven't planned it from day one. Yeah, yeah. We had the um, our sustainability leader always reported up to Dave Clark, and the it was CSCO at the time or SVP of Ops, and that seemed like the obvious place to put it. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure why anyone would put it anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Sustainability falls under the ESG umbrella, right? And so ESG has become a, a term for better or for worse. It's become quite controversial that is trickling down into supply chain as well. Um, I know I've mentioned this to Abe that I've had a, a number of conversations with CSCOs who I've known for years who would normally start talking about, we just automated a facility and who began the conversation of, let me tell you what we're doing with diversity and inclusion, which is you know a very different conversation with an operations guy. If you take it the the other side of ESG, the diversity and inclusion, it's often couched as um, you know the war for talent. This is what we need to do in talent. In your organizations or the organizations you talk to, how are you looking at this issue and and how are you addressing it either now or planning to in the future? Um, we can start with uh, Tom again. Okay, sure. I take a, a little bit of a fundamentalist view on this. <laughs> I I fundamentally believe that. ESG, that whole spectrum is hugely important, absolutely, diversity, inclusion, uh, gender equality, all that really, really important. And this is going to be, this is going to sound horrible when I say this now, but if we do not solve gender equality, diversity, inclusion in the next 100, 200 years, the world will keep going. If we do not solve climate, the world will not keep going. So for me, it's the climate one that I focus on. But to get back to your question, if I go back to that conversation I had with Ken Pucker from Timberland, he said that when they started on their sustainability journey, the lesson they learned from it, one of the big lessons they learned from it was when they advertised a position. He said that the the caliber of the candidates who were applying for that position were far higher than they ever would have expected. And it was because Timberland had this name of being an organization with a purpose and people wanted to work for an organization that was seen to be doing good. So for them, it was easy to attract new talent. And not only that, but the retention rates were also really high. So your costs of recruitment and retention, if you're seen to be an organization that has a good sustainability story, your costs of recruitment and retention come way down. Of course, your costs of acquiring new customers also come way down because people want to be buying from companies that are seen to be doing good. So So their efforts in sustainability helped build their DNI and, and talent. Rick, uh, you work with 
other companies as well. So, you know, what are what are people talking to you about, and what's impacting them? Yeah, I think the big thing from a supply chain point of view is how do we get closer to our consumers, and at the same time, how do we encourage teams to work together better? And to me, that's where ESG is is such a huge factor. People want to work for an organization and recognize that we're not just here for profits. We're here actually to make the, the world a better place for our customers and, you know, our employees. And so more diverse teams are more creative, they're more productive, they have better ideas, and people enjoy working at these organizations better separately than just impacting the climate because then you feel like you have a sense of mission. And you all hear the story about, you know, the bricklayer who's working on a wall. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm laying bricks. Well, I'm working on a wall. I'm building a cathedral. And so if you have a higher purpose at work and you realize that you're in it not just for yourself or the profits of the CFO or, or whatever, then you're actually much more connected to the mission of the business, which impacts things like uh, tenure, uh, turnover rates, and, you know, as, as well, which do impact the bottom line at the same time. In technology in particular, we have a big, we've got a white guy problem. <laughs> we, like, uh, you know, we are not a diverse group. Um, and, you know, when I was at Amazon, we were always, how do we get our, more than our fair share of, of women into technology and underrepresented minorities? And um, one of the things I thought was, like, we need to use the platform. Uh, because we have two, Amazon has two assets, right? The website and the logistics platform. And so how do we use that to drive the world to a better place, not just to Amazon to a better place. And uh, you know, I went and talked to the folks in electronics, and they said they now have metrics of like for the, all of their advertisements, but specifically for computers, they want to have as many girls as boys in the pictures on the website of kids playing with computers, and they like track it. And I thought that was like a great way because what we what we saw in like the '80s when I was growing up is all the marketing for computers was to boys. Right. And that is now paying off, paying <laughs> off in a very negative way that we ended up with uh, not enough women and others uh, in, the, in the technology. And so it's a, it's a hard, it's, you know, it's hard ship to turn. And the other thing is, and I'm, this is a little controversial, like HR is not your friend in this <laughs> because uh, they, they want everybody to be fair and so we can't disadvantage. And so what I found is when we were trying to move the company forward, it was hard. And so I said, like, let me individually try to help people. Because if we can promote women from what I call level six, from like first line manager to second line manager to director, six months faster in each one of those, you've created a whole new leadership tier. And uh, so I went out and found top tier women and sort of invested in like, writing feedback for them, coaching them, bugging their managers to promote them faster and sort of doing things not sort of corporately blessed which sometimes got me in trouble, but for the most part, I think was the right thing to do. Is it a difficult transition within technology? I've had individuals say to me, you know, we're all on board on this, but I've got managers who've been around for a long time, and it's a difficult transition for them. And as you say, technology is famous for being an old boys, you know, network. So is it a difficult transition? Is it okay for you? Go ahead. I think we're part of the problem here. No, <laughs> <laughs> so I was directing that to you. Yeah, yeah I mean... It is a super difficult problem because you you trip people, uh, you know, white, not white, women, men. You trip them, and every single one of them, you see, oh, I understand why that person left. They got a better job, or they had a family thing. They're moving out of town, and so on. And then you you look after a year or two, and you got a bunch of white guys again. <laughs> and um, so it's not an like entropy is working against you. You need to actively be investing in all of your talent, but specifically the talent who don't feel comfortable are surrounded by people who don't look like them 
and it's uh, it's a hard problem. And like I, I have not been successful. If you look at our metrics, like I feel like I've been pretty active, and like we never get above about twenty five percent women in the in the organization. But the number one thing you can do to get from twenty five to forty percent, hire a woman VP, mm-hmm. <laughs> or hire an African American VP yeah. or Hispanic, and that's that's a secret. So you kind of have to start from the top down. You're all bringing up really interesting points about not only the pipeline, but the talent and the skills necessary to be successful in today's environment as a supply chain professional. Um, Dave, you you brought out the the history. Uh, The majority of leaders today in supply chain did not come out of supply chain programs, predominantly finance and engineering in the 80s and the 90s. OWM, old white males that are predominantly holding those jobs today. But yet the diversity of the workforce, I mean, just look at this, you know, audience here. It's as diverse as you can ever imagine. And so we have that imbalance in terms of the leadership and the mentors, to your point, of hiring more you know, mentors, hiring more role models within the industry to demonstrate, yes, there are pipelines for individuals of you know, people of color, for women to get into supply chain and make a difference. Let's extend that discussion a little bit more about the skills necessary to be successful within supply chain. Historically, subject matter expertise was enough. As long as you were a functional expert in supply chain, that was the, you know, the criteria. Now that's the entry price to get into supply chain. Now you're requiring these individuals to have collaboration, communication, coordination across countries, across cultures, or being thrust into the leadership positions that historically were not part of our role and requirement within supply chain. So tell me, what are the skills necessary to be successful today, and what do you see in the future for supply chain professionals to be successful? You know, I, I think it's moving more into math and science uh, than, than ever before. So data, technology, analytics, um, retail trends even, because at the end of the day, if your customer is changing, then your supply chain needs to change because your supply chain is just an enabler. Like how do I get goods in and move goods, move goods out? And you know, those things are all, to be the most efficient today, it's, it's all a function of technology, you know, data, people process, and it's, it's not just about implementing those things. It's knowing, to Dave's point earlier, what are the right things to implement? Because you could say, oh, we need to automate this process better, but then ultimately you, you can get the wrong thing out the door faster um, and lose money faster um, in, in the same way if you're installing the, in the wrong system. So I think critical thinking skills it's just it's like such, you, you almost cannot emphasize it enough uh, in business where groupthink in any sort of corporation is you know epidemic everywhere. Um, and, and so if you're able to like really analyze a problem, break it down, get to the root cause, go back to like basics, five whys. Why do we here? How do we get here? What really got us into the situation? And then. What are the simple things we need to do to get ourselves not these, you know, find a silver bullet and then wash our hands of it and kind of move on? And so um, I think supply chain organizations suffer from the same sort of root problems that a lot of just normal big organizations suffer from. Dave, before I turn it over to you, one of the studies that was done was on the competencies of individuals graduating from school. And what are the employers looking for? And the mismatch, you know, where are they overweighted, where are they underweighted? And it was interesting. They were underweighted in real world experience and critical thinking, and we were overweighted in technology and data analytics. You put those two, you know, issues together, you've got technology with individuals who don't understand the data that's coming in or the data that's coming out and making decisions. 
Give me a sense of that, uh, you know, that dynamic for you. That's that's a lot. I have a PhD in physics, and I was completely unmarketable, <laughs> and I couldn't get a job doing that. So I started as a junior project manager at Amazon. And it turns out I could like I could drive a I could drive a project, and that was um, you know much more important. And you know back then it was like if I can write down description of the action item, name and owner, and a date, uh, I could I could drive it right. And and uh, so I did that for many years. And what we've seen in the last you know, five to ten years is the folks who are um, who are really succeeding in supply chain are operations research PhDs. We had a big program at Amazon to hire MBAs from MIT and Carnegie Mellon and these sort of technical schools called Pathways, and we'd make them go work in the warehouse for six months, and they hated it. <laughs> and you know, if they could they could work in the warehouse for six months and be an operations manager, then they could come to corporate and do all the analytics. But all the all the nodes and the arcs and you have to tie them together like it's super hard and you know computers end up in the end the computers tie them together but someone has to tell the computers how to tie them together and so like again i have a phd in physics and it's over my head um so you know i would recommend uh, like undergraduate engineering degree mba with with sort of operations and analytic focus and those are the folks that that i'm looking for as a vp of supply chain um, give me a sense here. What do you see on the, the skills necessary to be successful within supply chain? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> no, but more seriously, I think I think the points made so far are very well made. But what I would say as well is it's not just a, a knowledge of data and analytics, but it's also things are changing. Things have changed to get us where we are today that we need this knowledge of data and analytics, but things are going to keep changing and keep changing and keep changing and the pace of change is going to increase. So people need not just to have a knowledge of data and analytics, but they also need to have a thirst for knowledge. They need to have a curious mind. They need to continue learning new stuff all the time because things will continue to change all the time and get faster in doing so. Interesting point. Let's follow up on this a little bit. Uh, the study that we did with Gartner, um, and I think Dave, you alluded to this before about you know the the resources an organization has uh, to commit to either DNI or ESG. Uh, large public organizations are held to a higher standard, obviously because of public reporting, as you indicated before, Tom. You know, regulatory, the SEC is going to force some mm -hmm. reporting. Um, that hasn't been the case right now in you know DNI, especially on the diversity side. But yet we've seen more public organizations report out on their DEI initiatives, obviously because it's critical to them. Yeah. How do we, you know, enable the large organizations to work with the smaller companies that may not have the resources and the focus on DEI and talent development? Because these individuals have to come from somewhere, and your partners are an extension of what you do as an organization. So it's not only within your four walls, but it's outside of your four walls as well. So give me a sense of that extension of the public organizations into the private industry where we can really make a difference and you know for women and people of color. That's a really hard one. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think in the larger organizations there needs to be probably the best way to drive it is to make it part of the KPIs of the, the, the VPs or whoever are in charge of that outreach. It needs to be part of their KPIs, it needs to be part of their reporting structure. Uh, that's the, that, that is probably the biggest way to drive that internally within large organizations, I, I would say. What's measured is impact in yeah. uh, supply chain rules here. Huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're down to our last question. Let's end on like a really great positive note. 
this is, uh, as, as many people I've talked to in this room will say, it's the most exciting time that we've been in supply chain for most of our careers. So as the three of you look forward, and then I'm going to end and ask Abe the same question, what excites you about your job today and as you look to the future of supply chain? We'll start with Tom and then just go down the line. No, I get to ask the question. <laughs> So we're starting with me? Oh, yeah, there we go. Well, yeah. I'm Dave. I have to meet you. I had to do that one time. Yeah, we'll start with Tom. There you go. Sure, no problem. Uh, what excites me? I think I, I alluded to my passion around climate, and I think the the changes that I've seen, and I'll be, I'll be talking about this. I'm, I'm giving a talk at 11.45 on, on, on related to this. And the changes that I'm starting to see in the climate space, the things that are starting to happen, the initiatives that are being undertaken uh, by large organizations, by governments, by you know the, the whole the whole uh, slew of stakeholders who are involved in this, everyone is starting to come on board and, and hopefully row in the same direction. But at least now, there's been a change in the last two three years that I and, and I've been involved in this space since the, the early to mid two thousands, and I've not seen this level of change in that time. In the last two three years, the change where people are all starting to get on board and move in the right direction has really excited me. I'll get it right this time, David. Well, I um, actually like that we're talking about the supply chain. Like I have a thirteen year old and an eighteen year old who just went off to college, and so every night at dinner I would tell them about the supply chain because they're you know reading it in the in the uh, in the newspapers or whatever, the blogs uh, now. And, and so I was explaining, so we have a thing at my house. I take the dishes into the kitchen. My son loads it into the dishwasher. My other son unloads the dishwasher the next morning. So I was like, this is a supply chain. And then our dishwasher failed. <laughs> and I'm like, this is what Long Beach is. <laughs> and we had dishes all over the kitchen. And, and so I'm like, this is the supply chain. So hopefully one of my kids will internalize this and become a supply chain leader. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, some of the things, um, as I work with companies, partially with respect to the Amazon effect, in the last 20 years, what you've seen is digitization of consumer retail. So how can we get things next day, same day, which obviously has affected all of you in this room uh, in some way, I'm, I'm certain of it. I think in the next 20 years, one of the big trends you know, that I see that I'm excited about is digitization of, say, everything else, which means traditional B2B categories, industrial, scientific, aerospace, environmental, all of these categories want an Amazon-like customer experience. And so that is coming for these industries as well, not only from the buying relationships, so not just indirect procurement, which is sort of office supplies and, and things you need to run your business, but direct procurement, which is materials that you actually need to manufacture the goods and services that you're producing every day. That is becoming digitized from the starting with like visibility, Visibility is a whole class of supply chain software right now. It didn't exist 10 years ago. I mean, there are venture capital funds that are just investing in these sorts of firms. Visibility, then compliance. Once you have those things to the point you can measure things like DMAI, diversity and inclusion, all the things of all your supply chains, because it's one thing we know about big companies, and no offense to big companies in this room, it's like, if it's only the big companies being measured and not their suppliers, then that's, you're just going to push the problem somewhere else. It has to be over the entire supply chain because you can't un-sort of globalize the world. You know, I do think the world is getting uh, less flat, you know, in the next 20 years than it has in the, in the, in the last 20 years since Tom Friedman originally uh, wrote, the, wrote the book, The World's Flat. However, it's not, it's not going back to sort of the mountains 
you know, we, we originally had. It, it was just getting slightly less crap. <laughs> Uh, thanks, and uh, I couldn't agree more with the you know the comments that are here. I, I think we started this conference off talking about supply chain superheroes, and the transformation that's occurred within the industry and the challenges that these individuals have had to face over the past three years have been unprecedented. Um, I think if we take a look at historically, whether we take a look at climate issues or environmental challenges, we've dealt with those, whether the volcano or the you know, Fukushima. We've dealt with those types of disruptions in the past and recovered. We'll recover again, but the, the severity and the duration and the frequency of the disruptions right now, I think, are among the, the most uh, significant that we're dealing with today. So first, kudos to supply chain heroes everywhere for you know, their persistence and their perseverance in the face of significant challenges. Uh, secondly, the knowledge base of our supply chain professionals and the role responsibilities that they're taking on right now are it's extraordinary. But I think that's a recognition of who makes a difference within organizations. We've talked about you know, the, the path to the C-suite and the leadership in organizations for years. And we fully anticipate the supply chain professionals will be the next leaders. Why? There's only two functions in an organization that have to know everything that goes on in the company. The first is finance. And the second is supply chain. Technology may be the third, but if you can't get by the finance and if you can't get the supply chain, you're not getting your product in the door and you're not getting your product out the door. But yet when we see the path to leadership within organizations, it traditionally has not been within the supply chain professionals. I think that's going to change and I think we're seeing sort of... With, uh, with the notable exception of Apple. Uh, well, you've got Tim Cook, you've got Mary Barra, you've got a number of individuals out there, wonderful role models about what it takes to be a leader within organizations, absolutely. I think we're going to see a wave of supply chain professionals leading organizations, and I couldn't be more excited <laughs> about the future. And uh, our hope is that the recognition of supply chain, not only for the challenges that it has, because I think it's easy to pick the challenges that we face today, but we've responded, and the industry has responded and will continue to respond. And I think that's the, the message that we need to get out to, to not only our colleagues and our friends and our families is that you've got it in the hands of the right people, and that's the supply chain superheroes. And so I couldn't be more excited about the future. Take us out. Thank you very much, Bob. And I couldn't be more appreciative for Dave, Tom, and Rick for your insights. Um, our organization is only as good as the, you know, the relationships that we have with the companies, with the supply chain professionals, and with experts like you. So for The Rebound, I'm Abe Ashkenazi. And I'm Bob Turbocott. I hope you join us for the next episode of The Rebound. Thank you very much. The Rebound is a joint production of the Association for Supply Chain Management and Supply Chain Management Review. For more information, be sure to visit ASCM.org and STMR.com. We hope you'll join us again.